Kamala Harris is the vice presidential nominee of the Democrats. How much of a factor will she be in the upcoming election? I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. In the November election, the usually hidden and unspoken power of racism and sexism will be tested like never before. It's always been there, of course, but until the election of Donald Trump, the lid was kept on over the sewer. Well, Trumpism blew off that cover. In the person of Democratic nominee for vice president, California Senator Kamala Harris, we have a woman and a woman of color at that. A perfect, perfect focus for the racists and sexists of America. It's Quite a bold maneuver for the Democratic Party, testing the strength of women and people of color versus the now openly virulent hatred espoused by white supremacists. And on top of that, Trump has embraced and emphasized the long and ugly strain of anti-immigrant sentiment, especially immigrants who are not of Northern European descent. Kamala Harris's mother is from India, her father's from Jamaica, and she's married to a Jewish man. It's a real in-your-face, rather direct challenge to the far-right white supremacists. Sure, it's a gamble, but my sense is the odds may be in our favor. The outrage at the killing of George Floyd and so many other unarmed African Americans has been pretty much universal. Trump actually has called Black Lives Matter a hate group. His base loves it, but what percentage of the likely voters is that, as compared with the percentage of people of color, women angry at Trump's blatant sexism and the Democratic base? And immigrants and children of immigrants. At least where I grew up, we were taught that America is a nation of immigrants. Imagine that. Though Trump has actually questioned Kamala Harris's eligibility to become vice president, of course, That was simply racism, as was the birtherism against Barack Obama. Kamala Harris's elevation is intended to bolster Biden with young voters, people of color, and of course women who are not likely to think of themselves as suburban housewives, as Trump would prefer. Uh, At age 55, she's the first woman of color on a major party's presidential ticket, and her background, age, and gender are a balance with the top of the Democratic ticket and an older white male. (laughs) As candidate Barack Obama said in his 2008 campaign, thanks to the nomination of Kamala Harris, a great many often overlooked people are, as he said, fired up and ready to go. Well, today's discussion will, will look at why... And how is Kamala Harris firing up Americans? Our guest today, very pleased to have with us, Manisha Singha, who wrote an op-ed in the New York Times entitled, Why Kamala Harris Matters to Me. Dr. Singha is Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut and is the author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. Thanks so much for being with us, Dr. Singha. Thank you for having me, Bert. Well, your column starts out with this statement. I am experiencing Biden's vice presidential pick as a personal gift. Why is that? Tell us about that. Well, I actually find Kamala Harris's uh, personal biography uh, to be uniquely compelling. Um, You know, I am uh, an Indian-American immigrant who teaches the history of slavery and abolition and the Civil War. Uh, and uh, more broadly, uh, African-American history in the 19th century. 
And, um, you know, that part of my professional and personal identity, uh, you know, it was not as if, it was as if the twain would never meet. Uh, and, and in a way, Kamala Harris, her own identity as a, a black woman, as an Indian American uh, woman, uh, you know, it really speaks to me uh, at a personal level that I was surprised at because politically uh, I tend to uh, vote much more to the left. As do, frankly, a lot of us, but uh, the Democratic Convention uh, unintentionally is uh, connecting with a lot of people on a more personal level because uh, it's not just the speechifying at the podium, it's regular people. Now, you came to the United States in 1984, the year President Ronald Reagan was reelected. Uh, tell us, please, your interest in coming here. Why, what was that like for you, and why did you jump right into politics? Well, I came here as a graduate student, and um, I wanted to study American history, uh, and it made sense to come here to, to get my doctorate in American history. And um, I sort of jumped into politics immediately when I came here because of the kinds of issues I was interested in, in issues of race, uh, citizenship, uh, and democracy. Uh, and I do remember one thing actually quite distinctly, uh, that uh, under Ronald Reagan, the, the tax system in the United States became so regressive that we had to pay taxes on our measly graduate stipends while we knew that, yeah. you know, large corporations and very rich people did not. Um, and all my friends were politically active in New York City, um, and uh, it just seemed natural that I was interested in Reverend Jesse Jackson's mm -hmm. coalition and other sort of progressive groups um, within the Democratic Party. Uh, it was quite a dismal time in the 1980s, yeah. if you remember, Reagan had kind of a monopoly on the popular vote as well as the Electoral College. And so it was it was depressing if you were a, a liberal or if you were on the left. Uh, and uh, it, it just seemed natural for me to, to get involved politically when I came here. Well, it's interesting how back in 1964, uh, when Goldwater got uh, squashed in the election, uh the Republicans, the right wing, stuck with it. And then they elected uh, Ronald Reagan, who was at least as right wing as, as Goldwater. And Democrats, eh, we don't always do that. But uh, you are liberal, progressive, as am I. I think as are a lot of people. And, and perhaps uh, what's going on now, the, the dynamic, even the psychological dynamic that's going on, uh, perhaps this is a good time for people who think like we do. Uh, how did you come to write this uh, op-ed in the New York Times? Well, you know, uh, when the whole uh, selection frenzy was going on, uh, and there was all this uh, discussion about, you know, who he would pick, and, and every day it would be a new right. person, and people would be comparing all those different, you know, very worthy women. Yes. And um, I, you know, somehow had it in a gut feeling that he would select Kamala Harris, and I wrote this op-ed, uh, you know, talking about her selection two weeks before she was selected, sent it to the New York Times and told them, look, if she gets selected, you're welcome to revisit this and publish it. Otherwise, just trash it. No. So it was sort of funny that I, I kind of anticipated her selection. 
uh, despite all the chatter that was going on at that time. Um, but I also wanted to uh, make clear to a lot of people who think that somehow uh, the South Asian immigrant community is very distinct from the black community. I wanted to talk a little bit about the history of the connections, both politically and ideologically, between uh, Indian immigrants and uh, African Americans. Oh, interesting. My initial reaction to that is uh, uh, they're all the other, you know, they're not the white uh, certain uh, Protestant sect. They're all the other. Now, I may look white, but I'm really Jewish. But, you know, there, there is, we're the other as well. And the whole immigrant thing. Oh, my goodness. Um, now, I, I want to talk about her, Kamala's family background in India has included a well-respected group of political leaders. Can you tell us a bit about that heritage of uh, her background in India? Yeah, her background in India is also very remarkable. If you think about it, her mother, Shyamala, came to the United States uh, in the 1950s. You know, that was generally a pretty conservative time uh, for women in general all across the board. Yet in her family, uh, you had her grandmother, who was a social worker, her grandfather, who had been a freedom fighter and then worked for the government. Um, these were people who really believed in uh, women's equality and acted it out, uh, which was rather unique. I will let you, you know, one I should say, uh, in Indian society at that time. Um, you know, my own mother ha- has a BA, uh, and she got it in, in the 1940s, and I didn't realize how unique that was until I, I met my friends uh, whose mothers had gotten married immediately after mm-hmm. school, never went to college, uh, etc. And so, I, you know, I really understood the kind of family background Shyamala must have come from and uh, the kind of support she must have gotten from her father, mm. given the fact that Indian society tends to be extremely conservative uh, when it comes to women's equality, uh, and certainly was at that time. Uh, despite the fact that there were many Indian women who were feminists and who were involved in the Indian national movement, um, you mm. know, one of our first presidents uh, uh, of the Congress Party was yes. an Indian woman. Uh, so, you know, Indian women were there, but in general, yeah. uh, you would say that society was pretty conservative when it comes to women. So she had this unique family background uh, where women were empowered, and I think that really does make a difference. And it does translate into over generations because she clearly raised her daughters to be confident women, to be women who would not, you know, um, step back uh, when it came to fighting uh, for their own rights or that of others. Well, I think, you know, it's kind of a question of who we are. I mean, America is one country, but many, many different you know, a, a mosaic of, of different backgrounds here. And certainly the uh, Trump base is frightened and is fighting really hard to keep their dominance and control. And what you're talking about, the changes, the uh, uh, being educated and becoming professional, uh, is a direct challenge to that attitude and perhaps this election is a test of uh you know which is the american majority is it you know the the trumpists or 
a lot of new people who have all different colors and, and you know, lifestyle choices. It's a really a question of who is going to carry it forward, I think. And, you know, as, as you mentioned, Kamala Harris' parents were from India. Her mother is. And her father's from Jamaica. Both India and Jamaica were owned and controlled for a long time by the British. After being active in the struggle against racism for a long time, Malcolm X realized that racism and imperialism by white-dominated cultures were intimately related. Racism and imperialism related. Martin Luther King, in 1967, saw that a war in Vietnam was related to the poor people's struggle he was leading as well for freedom against domination by you know, white colonialists. What is the connection that you see between the black struggle for freedom here and the struggle for decolonization of Asia and Africa and the connection, uh, as you mentioned, between uh, uh, Americans of uh, African descent as well as uh, Indian descent and South Asian descent? Yes, you know, as a historian, I can say that those connections go way back uh, into the 19th century. And, you know, when you were talking about Trump's shrinking base of white supremacists and neo-Confederates and neo-Nazis, um, I was thinking of, you know, Southern slaveholders, how they painted themselves into a corner mm. in the 1850s, into a shrinking base, and, you know, ultimately fought. Hopefully, we are not in the brink of a civil war. But really, if you think about the rise of European imperialism uh, in the late 19th century, and even earlier in the 19th century, uh, at least as, as far as... Uh, Asia, Africa uh, are concerned, um, you know, you, of course, had uh, the settler colonial societies uh, in, in the Americas, in Australia, long before. But if you think about, you know, the rise, the heyday of European imperialism with the scramble for Africa, all this is taking place at exactly the same time that reconstruction, uh-huh. that brief experiment in interracial democracy took place in the United States. So, you know, from the 1890s onwards, you know, you get this sort of wholehearted move towards unadulterated white supremacy, um, scientific racism, social Darwinism. You know, this is the age of the Robert Barron's Gilded Age. It's the rise of the formal American empire. Um, And it's, you know, when the British ruled the waves and and basically ruled the world. Mm -hmm. And the people who were suffering because of all this, uh, whether it was, you know, your black sharecropper in uh, the Deep South or uh, an Indian cotton farmer or peasant uh, or tenant in India, we were all experiencing the brutal effects of uh, imperialism and white supremacy. (laughs) And you see this with the rise of the Pan-African movement. Mm -hmm. You see this in the correspondence between Indian nationalists uh, like Jawaharlal Nehru Mm -hmm. and the great black uh, intellectual and activist uh, W.E.B. Du Bois. Mm -hmm. Um, You see this in, um, you know, Indians who came over to the United States, but also in Indian indentured labor that is uh, exported by the British to the Caribbean to replace uh, enslaved black people after emancipation. There are all these connections taking place within this sort of broad umbrella uh, of imperialism. But what interests me more is the the struggles and the resistance that people 
put up and imagined these ideological solidarities. Um, you know, in my own work on abolition, I came across Indian immigrants um, to the United States in the early 19th century that intermarried with African Americans and identified themselves as black. Um, some of them even fought in black regiments uh, during the Civil War. Uh, and so, you know, if you really dig up the history, you'll find these kind of intertwined um, histories and struggles uh, against uh, European imperialism, because most black freedom fighters, and I think most um, nationalists in Africa and in Asia understood uh, that these were two sides of the same mm. phenomenon. <laughs> so they are. And this is really... I, I I love reading history myself. I find it so useful to understand now, to understand now. And with the nomination for vice president of Kamala Harris, boy, this is a unique opportunity to have those things, those histories of black and South Asian, you know, put together and both fighting against the same uh, imperialist racist forces. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. Our show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Dr. Manisha Singha, uh, who's written an op-ed in the New York Times titled, Why Kamala Harris Matters to Me. In your article, you show great appreciation for the connections between uh, India's Mahatma Gandhi's notion of satyagraha, I hope I pronounced that right, and Martin Luther King's version of active nonviolent resistance. I hope I pronounced it right. What is satyagraha? What does it mean? And as a student of the history of slavery and the Civil War, as well as someone participating in making history, that's you, what is the meaning and importance of their two guiding principles and its applicability today? Long question. I'm sure you can answer it nicely. <laughs> well, yes, you know, uh, satyagraha is uh, an Indian word. It mainly means uh, fight for the truth. Uh, but within that, Mahatma Gandhi incorporated um, this notion of what he called non-cooperation with evil and civil disobedience in order to resist evil. And even both, though both these tactics were non-violent tactics, they did not imply mean uh, passivity or complicity. Oh, for sure. They actually required active resistance. Uh, and resistance in the face of, uh, you know, state-sponsored violence, um, you know, in the face of law enforcement uh, using extremely violent and brutal tactics against peaceful protesters. Mm -hmm. All these ideas really resonate right down to today. Uh, we can see them happening in our streets. Uh, but yes. it's what inspired Dr. King uh, in terms of formulating his his strategy for the civil rights movement. Uh, it inspired people like Baird Rustin. Mm -hmm. It inspired people like James Lawson, who talked about it uh, during the funeral for John Lewis. Um, in fact, I just learned uh, after writing this op-ed that in, James Lawson taught in Nagpur, India, uh, for, uh, for a couple of years uh, and uh, sort of took that message of nonviolence back to India to Indian students also. Um, so this was a, a philosophy of resistance mm -hmm. um, that it occupied the moral higher ground. Uh, it was the Gandhian notion of uh, not fighting violence with violence, mm -hmm. not dehumanizing yourself, 
by using the tactics of the oppressor. Uh, and I think it had great resonance uh, for Dr. King, and it was successfully deployed uh, by civil rights activists who managed to occupy uh, the higher ground and won international sympathy uh, for the ways in which they confronted you know, brutal violence uh, directed against them. Um, and it's also true in the ways that at least later on in life, uh, Nelson Mandela mm-hmm. adopted this notion of uh, nonviolent resistance as, as a more constructive way yes. um, to defeat uh, oppress it, to, to defeat oppression and evil. And, you know, one can, you know, debate these tactics. Right. Um, I remember that an American journalist actually asked Mahatma Gandhi, you know, what about Hitler? You know, how would you defeat him with nonviolence, etc.? And, and Gandhi replied that sometimes violence is the, the lesser of the evil, mm-hmm. uh, but that in his instance, he felt that personally he felt the use of violence dehumanizes one, even in the best of causes. Um, and, uh, you know, it was an idea that Dr. King translated extremely well um, to the United States. Um, so, yeah, that that's, that's the philosophy. You know, people sometimes mistake it as being uh, more accommodationist or, uh-huh. or less radical. But actually, it, it, it requires a lot more courage not to fight back when you are being beaten up. That is true, and it works a heck of a lot better. The The Trump people love uh, when so-called Antifa fights back with violence. I understand the rage, and, and I've heard people say, well, if you don't you know, fight back with violence, uh, you're being like a Neville Chamberlain and just giving up. That is so not true. There are smarter ways to do it. You know, this is clearly what works. And you know what? I mean, you do violence, you're following... You know, if you think about it, Antifa has not killed anyone. No. But look at the right here, the militant right, neo-Nazis. They've actually True. killed human beings. They have. Um, Antifa has not killed or murdered a single person. No. Uh, and if you look at the roots of Antifa, you know, it was against fascism in Europe. Yes. Uh, so I think they've demonized this group here in the United States. Uh, a lot of time it's based on even a lack of understanding of its historical roots. Um, you know, there, there have been instances where, uh, you know, white Americans, in order to discredit Antifa, have perpetrated violence, Yes. even violence against property. So yes. recently they just revealed that the police precinct that was burnt down in Minneapolis that was attributed to protesters was actually done by this young white man. Uh, oh, my who was not part of the protest. Um, there was another person who broke windows, who was right. part of a right-wing group, who yes. um, the umbrella man, they called right, him. Right. Uh, and so, you know, there's so much of all this going on. Uh, they did that during the civil rights movement, too, in order mm. to discredit mm-hmm. uh, uh, more radical groups like the Black Panther Party uh, and Black Power movements. And I think we have to be really careful about it now, uh, with all the sort of disinformation circulating yeah, yes. around Kamala Harris, around the Democratic Party, uh, you oh, know, yeah. that somehow this is, um, uh, you know, uh, an attack on white Americans. Yeah, know. Uh, you know, that's the way uh, the British ruled, divide and rule. And I think we have to be really wary uh, about that. <laughs> oh, being smart about it is not always easy because, you know, it is emotional. People are angry. The anger is justifiable. 
But doing it smart, trying to learn from history, which we hardly ever do, uh, can be uh, more productive. And again, this election is a test of, uh, you know, is it white supremacists uh, not allowing change, you know, fighting against change? Or do we have a new American majority? I, I think we do. I'm reasonably hopeful. But then again, I've always, I mean, to be a, a liberal in conservative New Hampshire, you've got to be somewhat crazily optimistic. But we've gotten a few things done. Anyway, back to, to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Joe Biden's history of foreign policy positions has been what you and I might recognize as in the imperialist camp. I, I wonder if with her background, Kamala Harris might differ with him on that and perhaps be an influence if she becomes vice president. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I think Joe Biden uh, has certainly, you know, served for so long uh, that his political career probably encompasses a whole lot of positions uh, that he may not identify with today. And and think about the the Democratic Party as a political party completely on the defensive during the Reagan years when they lost each and every state, including Mm. Massachusetts, I remember, clearly, uh, except for Minnesota, you know, Walter Mondale's home state, they lost each and every state. And there was a real move uh, to move to the right. Uh, The Democratic Leadership Council did that, and they did produce a short-term victory with with Bill Clinton's years Mm -hmm. uh, in office. Um, So, yeah, you know, the, the, the debate always was, you know, should the Democratic Party be a pale imitation or a reasonable right. imitation of the Republican Party, or should it really fashion itself to be a social democratic party? And, you know, that's the legacy of FDR that Reagan steadily undid. Mm-hmm. And when they made liberalism a bad word, remember when liberal was like an insult? Uh, and so, you know, it, it we've come a long way since then, and I think Joe Biden probably has come a long way since then. You know, there were a lot of missteps in his career, um, especially, I would say, the Anita Hill hearings. Oh, yeah. uh, but in a way, I think he's atoning for it now. And, mm. you know, I'm not one of those people who thinks, you know, that's it. You know, I give up. This man uh-huh. is defined by what he did in the past. I'm really more interested in what the Biden presidency will do in the future. And judging from their platform and judging by this first decision that he has made, I'm quite hopeful. Uh, he's also been very good with foreign relations, especially with India. So ah. most Indian Americans are very happy. Oh, that's good. And I, I wonder, I don't know what records there are, what, what the numbers are in terms of uh, uh, South Asian uh, percentage of America. You know, I, I believe African-Americans represent about 10 percent of the population but i'm really not clear on that what about people from south asia i get the sense that percentage of the american population has grown substantially in recent years do you know i don't it has since the 1960s but it's still an extremely small part of the population but if you add a south asia all south asian americans within a broader Mm. rubric asian americans then you get a slightly higher percentage. Ah. And most of these groups vote predominantly Democratic, uh, even yeah. though there have been uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, figures in the Republican Party of South Asian descent. Uh, most of them tend to be Democratic in their voting patterns, at least from the last two presidential elections, nearly 80%. 
voted Democratic. Right. So hmm. I think the, the, these groups, uh, these immigrant groups, uh, are going to change things a bit. And the South Asian community, despite being a small community, uh, is, is rather wealthy because of the way in which the immigration policy of the United States is structured. It it basically allows people with skills and with education uh, to naturalize more easily. Uh, and so you get this kind of model minority myth. Uh, but that's because of the result of the policies of the government huh. that has... You know, attracted uh, mainly uh, high achievers from all over the world. Uh, you know, people don't think about that. Even you know, immigrants from the Caribbean and Africa, uh, they all tend to come here for education, and they tend to do uh, sometimes better than minorities within this country, who are you know subject to bad neighborhoods, ill-funded mm-hmm. schools, uh, and systemic racism going back for centuries. Um, so you can see that differential a little bit, yes. uh, but I would say that these groups are the ones that are really empowering the Democratic Party as this diverse uh, party of, you know, white progressives, immigrants, uh, uh, people of color, African Americans, and women. Uh, this is the majority of the American population today, and unless the Republican Party, you know. Um, cheats, or, which, or and which they're quite capable of doing, oh, which yes. they've done, yes. and invite foreign interference and do you know dismantle the U.S. political uh, postal service. Uh, you know they they are they're going to try every Everything. underhand tactic uh, to win. But if if this was a a democracy, mm. you know, if we were a democracy and we really um, stood by the notion of one person one vote uh, and 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 valued that. Uh, we would be a very different country. Imagine that, democracy. I kind of like it. That's why we call this show Keeping Democracy Alive. And our guest today is Manisha Singha, uh, who's written an op-ed in the New York Times, Why Kamala Harris Matters to Me. Dr. Singha is Draper Chair in American History at the University of Connecticut and is author of The Slave's Cause, A History of Abolition. What a history that is. There's so much not known yet, but... The more I find, the more I read history, the more I find I have to learn. Uh, and talk about, you know, people from South Asia. In recent years, there have been more and more South Asian descended people succeeding here in American government and politics. I've had the real pleasure of spending time with Ro Khanna. I wonder if you could tell us about him and Preet Bharara and other Indian Americans elected to public office, in what way does their success demonstrate the audacity of hope? Yes, I mean, I I, I do think uh, uh, Congressman Ro Khanna, uh, Pramila Jaipal, uh, these uh, people, uh, Indian American politicians, uh, you know, I've watched their rise, I've, I've watched their success, yeah. and, and felt happy because they have arisen not just on the basis of who they are, but they also stand up for really progressive values in our society. And they stand up for progressive policies. And, you know, that is something that is really heartening for me. Um, You know, in a way, a lot like the Jewish American community uh, from earlier generations who who got involved in civil rights and Mm -hmm. got involved with progressive causes and policies, 
um, you know, I have seen this and, you know, I, I feel happy about that. Of course, there are figures, you know, on the other side and, and the Republican side, uh, you know, who've uh, not done that well, but mainly because I think that party is no longer a party of any ideas. It has become a party of uh, disgruntled white supremacy. And so um, I, I doubt that their future is very bright. And, uh you know, thankfully so. Uh, I would rather see Indian Americans like Ro Khanna, like Pramila Jayapal, uh, really succeed, like Kamala Harris, uh, you know, whose presidential campaign platform was actually extremely progressive, mm. uh, and whose, you know, own personal connections uh, with uh, the African American community and the way she identifies herself also as a black woman, I think is really... Uh, important in terms of thinking about addressing some long-standing issues, uh, including the problem of systemic racial inequality in the United States. Oh, wouldn't that be nice? There's always hope. Now, (laughs) during her campaign for the presidential nomination, Kamala Harris's record as Attorney General for the state of California came under scrutiny. There were suggestions that perhaps she was too harsh on people of color. The movement to put an end to systemic violent racism by police, of course, is front and center now, which is great. Does her background, I wonder, offer a combination of reassurance to people frightened of defunding the police and those of us who demand an end to racist police violence? Might, might she be a, a bridge there? How, how will she play with communities of color who might be leery of a, of a prosecutor? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yes, so when she began her campaign, I read uh, differing things uh, about her record as, uh, um, you know, the Attorney General of California and before that as District Attorney. And, you know, on the one hand, there was this professor who wrote a kind of a hit piece against her, um, you know, from one perspective. Uh, And then there was another piece that was uh, written by a black activist on the ground who worked with Kamala Harris uh, in her uh, in her office. And so I was able to, I think, just based on just being a voracious reader of politics, um, you know, come to my own conclusion. And my sense was, as I wrote in my article, that on the whole, she was pretty progressive. Uh, She did things uh, that, you know, have now become adopted as reforms, including having dash cams for uh, police officers mm-hmm. and having rehabilitation programs, uh, etc. She, you know, opposing the death penalty for mm. uh, a person who was convicted of um, shooting a police officer. And so she took some courageous stance uh, in her time. And I think she really did feel that she was trying to represent um, minority communities and communities of color. Uh, But we do know that the entire system in the United States Mm. is is so uh, built on uh, racial injustice, uh, particularly when it comes to policing, uh, particularly when it comes to the use of force uh, against, um, uh, you know, people of color, um, that, uh, you know, it, it, it's difficult for probably one person to reform that. <laughs> what you need is what we have now. If we have a Biden-Harris presidency, you know, if we have, you know, 
sufficient political power at the federal level, um, sufficient uh, you know, power in the Senate, if we can turn the Senate around, yes. and we get rid of the Republicans as a major obstacle. And that's why she said that we need a mandate. We don't need just a win. We need a big win in order to really implement change. Uh, now, we know that, you know, you can pass the best laws and they, it might still be overturned or not implemented. Uh, but the point was that even some of the reforms that were passed by President Obama uh, were completely done away with immediately yes. by Trump. Uh, and so uh, it is important, you know, who is in power. And I, I would rather have a party and a people in power whom we can talk to than those who would simply imprison you <laughs> or uh, tear gas you or, or do something worse to you. And so, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm hopeful um, that if we, we do win this uh, presidential election, that there is room there for some real substantial change uh, on law enforcement. Uh, you know, the entire country is crying out for it. Yes. When the movement for black lives began in 2013, it was a predominantly African-American movement with a few white allies. But after George Floyd, yes. this became a nationwide diverse movement. And, uh, you know, one can see that the political momentum is there for, for real substantial change. So, yeah. so I'm hopeful, but it could be that I'm, you know, I tend to be an optimist, even though I'm a historian of slavery and now writing about the Jim Crow era of racial terror. Ah, yes, it did continue for a long time after slavery was technically ended. Uh, and, of course, racism, you know, wasn't limited to the South. It goes, this country, I think a lot of people, the, the George Floyd moment woke up a lot of white people in particular who just really didn't have an idea how pervasive it was. And just seeing that on TV in our faces, uh, just I, I, it was a big moment of change. Now, you write, despite well-deserved criticism from the left of some of their policies, Mr. Obama and Ms. Harris represent the cosmopolitan interracial democracy that a majority of Americans aspire to live in today. End of your quote. I believe the Trumpist raison d'etre is to fight against this new American majority. Uh, and we've heard the term culture war. I, I think it kind of is a bit of a culture war. What are your thoughts on that? And I hope it doesn't get too yeah, bloody. Well, they, this, this is an old war. You know, we think of it as being, you know, something new uh, because, you know, we are living through it in this present moment. But if you look at the fight over Reconstruction immediately after the Civil War uh, and the, the fact that the white supremacists, the Ku Klux, uh, clan people and, and all those people who erected the Confederate monuments, yes. then they won then, you know, yes. and they did it in order to defeat the interracial democracy that Reconstruction represented. So, you know, this whole project of American freedom and democracy has been contested from day one. And the point is that the good side can't simply rest. Now it has become even more, I think, multicultural. You're right. Uh, perhaps than it was then. Uh, but I think it is important for us to to kind of revive those those fights. I mean, look at what Trump and all are fighting against, national birthright, citizenship, 
casting aspersions on Kamala Harris's birth. This was guaranteed by the 14th Amendment that enfranchised former slaves after the Civil War. So it feels that we are fighting the same battles again and again. But uh, I do think that at this point, we do, as I said, have a majority, I would say, uh, of progressive people and immigrants and people of color who can come together. Uh, And the point is that that's what we really need to focus on, because a lot of time the other side the only way they win is by sowing doubt yeah. and division and yes. negativity. Yes. I mean, that's their playing card because they don't have anything constructive. I mean, you can't run no, sure. that form of racism, right? Well, they are, in a way, running a yes. platform of racism. But, you know, you, you, you don't have any ideas. You don't even stick by the ideas you claim to believe in. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's probably... Uh, uh, you know, a time when, as President Obama said yesterday, you know, the future of the country is at stake in these presidential elections. And I hope most Americans recognize the gravity of uh, what could happen if if Trump wins again. I don't even want to think about it, because I think it would be a disaster for the United States. It would, uh, we would no longer be... It would be the end of the American century, basically. I think so, too. And I I worry personally, being a dissenter, you know, I always thought uh, dissent was a high form of patriotism, but not according to those guys. You know, if there's a police state, yikes, look out. Now, we talk about history. This This is what you do, history. Before reading your article, I had, frankly, never heard of the infamous 1923 Baghat Singh Thind case. What was that, and why is that? something we perhaps ought to know about. We, we really do need to know about this. So we go back to the period beginning from the 1890s, you know, when they're starting to pass Chinese exclusion laws. Um, you know, it's a subjugation, brutal subjugation of the Plains Indians in the West. There's a retreat from Reconstruction in the South, the start of formal American empire, uh, and a brutal suppression of the nationalist movement in the Philippines. All this is happening at the same time. And by the 1920s, you're getting a country that is really extremely conservative on various fronts, but especially on race, so much so that even the so-called progressive era uh, is not particularly good when it comes to dealing with issues of racial Absolutely, inequality. Yes. Um, so the these Indian immigrants, represented by, uh, you know, Bhagat Singh Thind, uh, basically they were looking to naturalize and become American, equal American citizens. Uh-huh. Um, and the Supreme Court uh, at that time ruled uh, that he uh, were, could not be naturalized uh, because even though he claimed to be, quote, Caucasian, according to the pseudoscientific definition mm-hmm. of Caucasian then, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they said, no, you know, he, he really doesn't look at it, and Indians should not be allowed uh, to be naturalized. And oh. this is on the eve of the 1924 Immigration Act that basically mm-hmm. stopped immigration, not just from Asia and Africa, but also Southern and Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. They wanted immigrants only from Northern Europe. And that yes. was the immigration regime in place right up to 1965 to create a northern European white yes. Protestant country, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was against many of these people today who 
don't realize that their own ancestors coming, you know, um, from, you know, in fact, a lot of Italian Americans started coming through Mexico, walking across to the border. You know, they, many people don't realize that their own ancestors were subject to a racial regime. They were seen as lesser whites, you know, Slavs. <laughs> Uh, Jewish people were yes. the suspect. Of course. You know, there, there were all kinds of ways in which uh, you had this very nativist, racist kind of immigration regime. And Tin lost his case, even though he was a veteran of the First World War mm. and had fought in the U.S. Army. And so uh, he lost his case. And what I found out when I was writing the article that his case resulted in the denaturalization of other Indian Americans. Oh so the Indian American presence, even though it was here, it was minuscule, and this was a real deterrent uh, to Indians coming um, to the United States. Indians were also seen as radicals, because at that time you also had the Gadar movement in India, which was a kind of a revolutionary movement against British rule, and a lot of those mm. uh, refugees, uh, political refugees, ended up coming to Canada and to the United States. Mm-hmm. So they were also viewed, you know, suspiciously in the age of the Red Scare and uh-huh. when all anarchist, socialist, labor mm-hmm. leaders, feminists were all viewed in, in a suspicious fashion. So um, so it's, it's a very interesting case. And uh, even though you did have, in the end, you know, Indian Americans coming into this country, like Kamala Harris's mother, uh, the real immigration from South Asia comes after the 1965 uh, immigration Act, Immigration and Nationality Act, that actually gave um, you know equal quotas to different countries, um, no matter you know, despite the fact that you may be from India, etc. Though I will say this: that when I naturalized, it took me a long time, uh, and my husband, who's German, his naturalization was, went through in two months. So <laughs> I, I think uh. there's still some. Repency there, Uh, maybe just because there are many more people applying to immigrate to the United States uh, from India than perhaps Germany. Um, But I do tell him that at least my letter was signed by President Clinton and his, unfortunately, is signed by Trump. And so he (laughs) plans to burn it on November 3rd. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that sounds terrific. You know, I... I, there's a friend of mine who's been here for 12 years who's from uh, Jordan. He's he's worked here a long time. He's a good, hardworking guy. He can't get citizenship. And I can't help but think that being Arab is a significant factor in there. One wishes it weren't so, but I, I believe it is. You know, and on top of this history of, of racism, which is, you know, huge, there's sexism. A recent article in the New York Times titled Women Cheering Harris as One of Their Own, The Country Finally Sees Us. Uh, it interviews many women about uh, Kamala Harris. One of them writes, With Ms. Harris, the women of color said they thought of their own childhoods and workplace struggles. Some recalled difficult experiences in boardrooms and courtrooms and salary negotiations and in countless conversations about inequality. I wonder how much this dealing with sexism, you know, Trump says he's had, he has a lot of support. He's counting on the support of suburban housewives. I still can't believe he uses that term. But uh, how much do you think this 
sexism issue now that Kamala Harris is uh, the candidate for vice president, how much do you think this will play into the electoral dynamics of 2020? I do think it will play into the the dynamics uh, in uh, the elections. Uh, if you notice, there has been a growing gender gap uh, in the ways in which men and women vote in the United States. And this is particularly true of women of color and black women who overwhelmingly support progressive causes and the Democratic Party. Um, and this gender gap, I think, will simply grow. I have a feeling we'll see an enormous gender gap this uh, this coming election, too. Um, you know, sexism is something that is so pervasive, um, you know, not just in, in sort of legal and egregious ways where we see with the, with the Me Too movement, etc., but also in subtle ways, you know, uh, the women are always discounted, uh, and there's a kind of an old boys club in nearly every profession, including academia. Uh, we have groups like Women Also Know History and Women Also Know Law and uh, groups like that that try to amplify the voices of women or cite women, etc., because it's, it's, it's virtually, you know, both racism and sexism Custom so old that yes. it feels like nature, right? And and they they all, you know, it's it's something that particularly black women face constantly. So if you see in that article, they just you know people think you shouldn't be happy with just identity and representation, but it does matter when the face of those in power look different. I think it does make an effect. Uh, it certainly. The Obama presidency had an enormous effect, yes. I think, in disseminating uh, popular histories of slavery and, and African-American history that wasn't there earlier. Uh, of course, we want all this to be backed by policy. Uh, and I'm hopeful that it will be because, you know, just look at the COVID-19 crisis. Most countries, I mean, people have been saying this, run by women have just done better uh, than uh, uh, countries run by men. Uh, I'm, I'm not saying that there's some kind of inherent difference, uh, you know, in terms of the way men and women handle things. I mean, we've had Margaret Thatcher, after all, yeah. uh, and we have <laughs> Nikki Haley, and no. we have, you know, all these, uh, you know, Phyllis Schlafly, oh, and yes. all these women who are, uh, you know, extremely conservative, uh, anti-suffragists, women who are anti-suffragists, yes. who didn't yes. want the vote. So, we, you know, clearly it's not as if women are inherently morally uh, superior or well-equipped, but I do think it makes a huge difference when you have more women, when you have more people of color, when you have yeah. more immigrants, when you just have a more democratic process when it comes to the political decisions and other decisions uh, in, in different professions in our lives. Um, you know, it's, it's all for the better. Uh, and this notion that there's something should always be an exclusive club, uh, like uh, if you look at the faces of people in the Republican Party yeah. or the senators, I mean, it's just like, you know, except for the odd token here and there, it's it's quite shocking. So, um, you know, I, I do think in not just in terms of the future of democratic American politics, but also the future of global politics. You know, we live in a world that is so interconnected Right now, we have learned that uh, recently very well, mm. that, uh, you know, we can't afford to be insular. We can't afford to be um, provincial. Uh, because if we go down that path, we're going down the path of the Confederacy, 
And that's not the path that the American Republic should be choosing right now. Well, of course, Trump doesn't like the idea of a republic. He wants something different, like a plutocracy, you know, or a uh, religious nationalism. But uh, you know, it, it, the, the fact that Kamala Harris is black and Indian, uh, and she's not your Phyllis Schlafly type Republican, it always amazes me. Women who come out for Trump, I, I think it's a lot of fear, fear of you know, upsetting the dominant force somehow, and that getting back to you. Yeah. I mean, this long... And I think racism plays a role. There have been a lot of white women who have, you know, you think of Southern white women. Yes. Uh, and yeah, you think not. of the daughters of the Confederacy erecting those monuments um, to uh, fallen Confederate leaders. Uh, there have always been uh, a group that has been extremely reactionary and that has put... Uh, you know, some kind of fiality to to both patriarchy and also to racism above everything else. So, and they will continue to vote for Trump. Um, you know, they, they, they're the kind of people who cast aspersion at Kamala Harris, who was born in California, mm-hmm. and not realizing that two of Trump's wives and his mother were born abroad. And they're naturalized citizens, but because they are perceived as, quote, white, yes. uh, they somehow are natural American citizens, yes. while those who are not are not. And, you know, I just think it's, it's, really, it's really pernicious, um, that kind of racial thinking that is very commonplace amongst Trump supporters. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and they say things without irony, you know, so <laughs> they say these things openly. And I, I, as a state senator, one of the uh, uh, wonderful things I was able to participate in were naturalization ceremonies. And people who come here, they understand the Constitution. They, and it's like people, you know, people who haven't seen that don't get how dedicated to citizenship, you know, generally is going on there. And it's, I mean, the racism is just phenomenal. Now, somehow, I'm so lucky, I get emails from the Trump-Pence campaign every day. I get the sense they're actually written by Trump himself. Really. Yesterday, I got this. The Democrat convention this week is going to be a test of our resolve. Friend, the attacks will be nasty and the lies will only get worse. Remember, they're not just after me. They're after you and everything you stand for. End of quote from the Trump thing. You know, talk about divisive. Is there a new majority? How confident are you that we who oppose racism and sexism and police violence and uh, white male domination and control, are we the majority? How is it different this time from 2016? How much does having Kamala Harris on the ticket help unify this and create excitement, do you think? I think it does, actually, because she does speak to immigrant groups. She speaks to African-Americans. She speaks to women, uh, women of color. Um, You know, I think her nomination was a brilliant decision by Joe Biden, and it really goes well for his uh, presidency because it was a unifying decision. It was a decision that acknowledged the central role uh, that women of color had played in the last uh, elections in mm, giving Hillary true. Clinton uh, a nearly three million vote majority, mm-hmm. um, even though she lost the electoral right. college. So I, you know, I, I do think that you know, even in terms of young people, 
and and progressive rights. I mean, I am I have been teaching now in this country for nearly 30 years. And you know what really gives me hope are, are the young people. Yes. I mean, they're oh, just yeah. so much more progressive and enlightened than even I am. Uh, you know, I look at my own oh. sons, and, and, and they, they just don't understand racism. Yes. Uh, they've been educated to believe in everyone's equality. And it's a good American creed. Uh, you think about how you get citizenship in the United States. It's not because of your religion or your race or your, um, you know, sex, it's all about you believing in the tenets yes. of American republicanism. And the people who don't believe in that anymore is the Republican Party. <laughs> uh, they have discarded uh, the Declaration of Independence, oh even. You know, they, oh. That's why they remind me a lot of slaveholders. I think I've written many op-eds comparing the current the Republican Party to southern slaveholders on the eve of the Civil War, you know, they they write things like, "Oh, we are not a democracy." Right. You know, it's as if the thirteenth, fourteenth, fifteenth, nineteenth amendments were just never passed. <laughs> uh, in the, <laughs> you know, we are we are a republic. Well, if we were a, rep- a republic uh, from the eighteenth century, then only propertyed men could yes, vote. True. And those propertyed men, by the way, included blacks. <laughs> it didn't discriminate against blacks. <laughs> it actually, if you were propertyed black free black man yes. in the American Republic. You could vote. So, so they don't even know their history very well. No. Uh, and they mangle um, our, our great leaders. You know, the, the, the most hilarious thing to, is to see Trump uh, trying to say, I've done more for black people than anyone <laughs> yeah. else. And yeah. maybe just old Abe Lincoln <laughs> and trying to, you know, he, he seems to envy the fact that Lincoln is always seen as the greatest president, uh, wants his face up in Mount Rushmore. I mean, yes. The idiocy and the sheer hubris, I mean, it's just astounding Uh, to me. I have a feeling that most Americans uh, might hopefully choose uh, the American creed of republicanism. They might choose American democracy over the appeal to their basis instincts. As long as that that becomes communicated, if people get that, I'm not, I I, I think they do. I hope they do. And uh, I I like that... uh, uh, you write that uh, the na- new national prominence of Kamala Harris has been therapeutic for me. This is a tough time. We all need a little uplift like that. Thank you so much. Very informative and, uh, dare I say, hopeful. Uh, Manisha Singha, uh, who is D- Draper Chair of American History at the University of Connecticut and the author of The Slaves Cause a History of Abolition. And what's your new book? I'm writing a new book on the reconstruction of American democracy uh-huh. after the Civil War. So, again, I think quite pertinent to the times that we are living in. Absolutely. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, we're all in this together trying to keep democracy alive. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Bert. One of the attractive things about Kamala Harris is that she likes to have fun and she likes Bootsy Collins. Find the time to to dance. Find the time to whistle and sing and, and bop your head. You know, we have to like all of that, all of that.
Family.